So we don't really understand how many elders are alone, and that brings all kinds of issues. Of, you know, family members can have power of attorney, but if there's nobody there, how do you handle that? Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I also lead a caregiver support group in my local community. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Speaking of best medicines, right? <laughs> you got that right. <sighs> you know, being an in-home caregiver afforded you the opportunity to pursue writing. And not only did you pursue writing during your caregiving years, but after Dad passed, it fundamentally changed your whole purpose in writing. Um, it absolutely did. You know, the fact that I've been writing, was writing short stories since I was eight years old, uh, you know, that really made it a lifetime commitment for me. And during the time I was a caregiver, having heard people say, why doesn't somebody write a book and tell people what it's really like? I thought I could do that. And I started writing Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver. Well, the care took over and I had to put it aside. After he passed away, I started it again, but it was reliving it. So I set it aside again. And then finally, I was able to complete that book. And then the second book, Caregiver, You Are Not Alone. And yes, yeah, everything I write now has something to do with caregiving and the support of caregivers. Um, and that brings us to today's guest. She's a fellow author that spent 18 months as the primary caregiver for Anna, a 95-year-old bachelor woman who loved life and learning until she forgot her passions. Guiding Anna through stay-at-home care and then into assisting living became Anna's lifeline in the baffling world around her. Terry Korth Fisher is our second author who cares that we've invited on the show, the first one being Jonathan Mayberry. We are very pleased to welcome Terry Korth Fisher. Welcome, Terry. Good afternoon. So you are one of the many caregivers who took care of someone on a regular basis who was not a family member. Uh, I would love to have you tell us and our listeners about Anna and your relationship with her. It started out, uh, we were friends. We belonged to uh, some groups together, some writing groups uh, initially. And uh, she was just uh, so enthusiastic. She was a mentor and an inspiration to all of us. And as she aged, she got so that uh, she couldn't drive. And uh, I enjoyed her company so much that that became something that I enjoyed doing, picking her up and taking her and enabling her to continue on with the passion that she had. And then through the years, or she ended up with uh, arthritis in her hands and wasn't able to write anymore. Uh, she found even the keyboard of the computer a challenge. And so she kind of gave up on her own writing, but she championed everyone else. So, so it was really great. Um, Anna had uh, lived by herself for so many years and really took care of herself and felt very self-sufficient. And when she couldn't any longer, she had a hard time uh, asking for help. 
And being, uh, since I was in her home very often because I was giving her rides and we were friends, I was able to see that she needed something and someone else to help her through some of the just everyday things that were happening. Uh, some things were a bother for her. Um, and she was very good at hiding her dementia. So you didn't quite know that she, that she, that, that that actually was her problem. And then unfortunately she had a fall and uh, after the fall, she couldn't take care of herself at all. And when I went to pick her up, I found her uh, not fallen, but after a rehab and at home with no one overlooking or supervising anything. And that's uh, pretty much when I stepped in to try to uh, do do something to see that she got some care. Well, one of the things I'd like that you pointed out was that even though she wasn't writing anymore, she was very much supportive of other writers. Um, just as an aside to our talk about dementia, I think writers are among some of the most generous people when it comes to supporting other people in this world. Um, and it's, it's no wonder to me that you forged a friendship over this commitment to writing. We did. We absolutely did. Uh, she enjoyed uh, asking you what you had written. Uh, it often triggered uh, stories that she had of her childhood or where she had been or where we ought to all go with this. You know, so she was always right in there in those conversations and those uh, pursuing those writing. So a term that you've used is mm. orphan elder. And uh, would you... I found it fascinating. Um, would you explain to the listeners what you mean by an orphan elder? Uh, Anna was one of these very uh, fortunate people, and they were very self-sufficient, but unfortunate in the fact that she outlived all of her contemporaries uh, and uh, was estranged and distant from any second, third generation relatives that she had. She never had any children. And so she was orphaned in the sense that there was no family around her except the family of friends that she chose. And uh, it appears that, you know, as the baby boomers are moving in, that this situation like this is happening more and more. There isn't a daughter, or a granddaughter, uh, you know, some close family member that can take over the, uh, the honor of helping them through those senior twilight years and uh anna was very much an orphan it's a, it's an issue that's growing rapidly as you mentioned especially among the baby boomers there's a high incidence of divorce baby boomers are living longer and longer their spouses are dying recently just in our area at one of the local libraries they had sponsored a presentation about older orphans and didn't expect much of a turnout but there was like something like 90 people so we don't really understand how many elders are alone, and that brings all kinds of issues. Of, you know, family members can have power of attorney, but if there's nobody there, how do you handle that? And how do we reach out and um, educate people who don't have family on how to plan for what's coming forward? Because I'm sure a lot of them don't have a wonderful friend like you. Thank you. <laughs> Well, and, and not only that, but in, in your 18 months where you were with Anna, uh, 
were any of those type of things in place so that you could act on uh, her behalf? Not prior to the incident where she came back from rehab and there was no supervision whatsoever. Uh, she was a very, very private person. And uh, she grew up in that era where uh, you did a, a privacy, where you didn't let someone else know. She, right. uh, she was affronted if you asked her how old she was. You know, she, you know, so it, it was, it, and, and to say, do you have enough to eat? That was an insult. You know, you just, you, you couldn't do that kind of thing. She didn't ask for help. She didn't ask for help at all. And uh, so, uh, and she also unfortunately thought that she would live forever. And so she had done some uh, very nice financial planning. She had some annuities in place. And uh, it, thankfully, she was financially okay, that uh, she was taken care of and could do things, but she didn't initiate anything. So uh, I did go through the uh, whole procedure of becoming her financial uh, power of attorney and her health power of attorney. Uh, and in uh, I, I live in Texas, and so those things are governed by the, your state and in the state of texas you pretty much have right. to be blood you have to be a a, a a blood relative in order to do anything and so uh, we were able to accomplish it uh but if you looked at the hierarchy of your you know of how you get those powers to help someone uh i was like 12th on the list so her creditors were ahead of me <laughs> in 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 some oh. of the some of the things so uh it it was it was difficult uh but but we managed we managed and who did you go to to get that in place was it an elder law attorney um who helped you through uh, that actually some of the uh you have some home health people that come after uh an you know after you have something like anna had where she was in the hospital and then went to rehab and so then there are some uh, caregivers, in, uh, facilitators in place that come and check. And, and I don't want to say this and uh, I, I would like to say this very diplomatically, but, but <laughs> what they really were concerned about was the liability that she had been released. And did she, if she didn't have supervision, they wanted to be sure they could bring in social services. And so there was some pressure to get her taken care of, but to get her taken care of quickly uh, before um, someone who didn't care at all got in between helping her do what she needed to do, and, and, uh, which was stay at home at that point. Um, and, and, and these people were doing their job, and they were very good at doing their job. Uh, but Anna was uh, headstrong, and she wanted to stay home, <laughs> and she wanted to stay with her dog, and, and and she thought this was something that would just, you know, I've I've always bounced back. I can, you know, I can do this, you know. So uh, it was a little right. difficult uh, because of her writing, and this is uh, it may seem a little silly, but because of her writing. Uh, she was, I was able to uh, sit down and talk to her about, you know, the fact that we needed to do something, put something in place. And uh, uh, when she would look at me and I could tell she wasn't following or she wasn't agreeing with me, 
uh, I went home and I wrote, you know, like a three page letter to her, you know, this is who you are and this is what you need and this is how I could help you and this is where we could go with this and brought it back to her and she sat and read it and then she said, I need to think about this and two days later, uh, we agreed on what our path would be. So she was able to understand that through reading what was there. I think that might be something that would work for me when the time comes because they spend so much time with the written word that it that would mm-hmm. that would make sense to me. She also had a problem with hearing. Her hearing was very very bad. And so uh <clears throat> excuse me, but one of the things that she wanted to do was uh have her have her hearing aids replaced because she knew she couldn't hear well. And so we did some bartering with this. Um, and so we agreed, yes, we'll go and get her tested and we'll see what, you know, what happens with that. And it was a real eye opener to me. Uh, she had poor hearing, but hearing aids didn't help her because it wasn't the volume of, that was the problem in her hearing. What it was is her mind didn't translate words correctly. So she only heard like 70% Correct. of what was actually said to her. And so that's why the written word helps so much. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the fact that, you know, when somebody with dementia is not responding to oral stimulus, it's not necessarily that their hearing is impaired. It's the brain connection um, that is not working any longer. And that seems to be frustrating for people who don't understand. I had mom's hearing chest checked it's absolutely fine but she's not responding to me she must be doing this on purpose and what i found is uh, we we stayed at home for like um, 90 days and it just wasn't working out for either one of us and so i did um, um, persuade her to go to assisted living which she agreed with and uh, but what we found there is because of her hearing and because most of the caregivers were younger uh, they liked to tease and she didn't hear well enough to, to understand the teasing. She thought they were taunting her or she thought they were talking about her. And, and so it, it, it caused problems. Um, the hearing was a problem. She would have probably been happier if she would have been deaf, although that, you know, that sounds very drastic, but there would have been, you know, the mm-hmm. opportunity for the misunderstandings would have gone away. I was going to ask you if you were actually living with her for a time, but you kind of answered that when you said you tried it and it didn't work out. We, uh, what happened is uh, I took her to, the, to her doctor's appointment and she just absolutely loved her doctor. And the doctor said uh, she needs to have 24-hour supervision. And uh, so I said about getting her uh, 24 hour, seven days a week supervision. Uh, I have a home and a husband and I, I could not live with her. And so uh, I, I did set up, you know, a schedule. We found what I thought were competent people, brought her in, brought them into the home. And what I found is that after she made the initial effort to be friendly and cooperative with them, she found reasons why, what she, why they shouldn't be in her home. Um, true or untrue, it didn't matter, but she felt unsafe there. And when I would go, and I took shifts um, because she was very comfortable with me, and when I would go, she would sleep. 
And when the other caregivers were there, she would be awake and uh, she couldn't go to sleep because she was afraid something would happen. Uh, for whatever, you know, something would happen. They would take something or someone would knock on the door and she wouldn't get in or her mail wouldn't get into the house or I mean, just all kinds of crazy things. And uh, so she made it uncomfortable for the caregivers. And uh, I was spending more and more time there personally, and I couldn't afford to do that. So, so we, I did mm -hmm. um, eventually move her to a facility um, and, and it took some time to find what I thought would be the right facility and was very happy with it. And she eventually did uh, end up okay there. You know, she was, I, I don't want to use the word happy, but she was comfortable there and she understood why she was there and what was happening and her puppy was there her little dog was there and then um, awesome eventually uh, she decided that the dog wasn't happy there and sent the dog to live with her old neighbor and in my mind I think that was her way of saying I can't leave but I'm gonna let my dog escape <laughs> and, and and go back <laughs> home you know so that was uh, that was kind of well, it speaks a lot of her trust for you, um, and you should. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you feel very blessed that you had that trust from her, as opposed to the quote strangers coming in, even though they were probably there with the same uh, uh, feeling of wanting to to help her and assist her in every way possible, but they were strangers. They were Right. Uh, they, were, they were strangers. And uh, she had a, a real need because she'd always been self-sufficient. I think she had a real need to always feel like she was a contributing partner. And so uh, our rapport with each other was uh, always agreements. You know, so if I went to, I would say, you know, I'm going to come, I'll be here tomorrow morning and we'll go to breakfast together if that's going to work for you. Oh, yes, I'd love that, you know, that kind of thing. Now, she didn't always remember I was coming the next day and she might greet me with, oh, I didn't know you were going to be here today. But at least she was part of that uh, agreeing that that's what right. we would do. And we kept a little book. Uh, an appointment book, and she was the one who decided what was written in the appointment book. So if we were going to do so, I always needed to prep her. If we were going to go to the doctor next week, I needed to every day tell her, oh, you know, you know, next so-and-so, we're going to go to the doctor or we're going to and do it every day. And we'd write it in her book and then she could look in the book. Um, she didn't always remember, but it was in the book if she did go to do it. We also learned that when you did these little notes, you always put the day, you know, the month, the day, the year, the time, uh, because she would, <laughs> she was, she would keep everything. So she'd have all these little scraps of paper with little notes on them, and if she found something from a week ago, then she, you know, she wondered why we didn't do it, but the time had gone past, and she didn't have that concept any longer. So. Well, you know, one of the things that you did uh, was make the decision that in order to see to it she got the best possible care was to determine it wasn't at home. Yeah. And that's, that's something that some people struggle with, uh, especially if they told mom or dad they would never do that. But I always try to remind them that behind that is I will make sure you get the best possible care. And it may not be right down the line to keep that person at home. Mike, you were about to say something? 
Yeah, I found it interesting that she would write down the different the different things. And my dad would do that too. He had uh, basically a piece of paper about the size of a square post-it note that he kept in his wallet. But he was very conservation conscious because he needed that to last forever. <laughs> and so he would write so, so, so small. It always amazed me of how he was able to write so small. But he could never read it because it was written so small. <laughs> and even I had a hard time reading it because it was written so small. But uh, it always um, made me chuckle and still makes me chuckle when I think of it, that he would write these things down, but he couldn't read it because it was written down so small. And I still have one of those little, little itty bitty pieces of paper um, with all these writings on it that can't decipher. But I, I just found that interesting, and that's just a little anecdote from my dad. One of the things um, you said, and I don't know where I saw it, but you talked about um, you helped her with the baffling world around her. And I know my dad used to always say, yeah. it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Can you uh, talk about that yes. a little? Yes, and, uh, and I, I wish I knew the answer to how you really do that. Uh, I can tell you what I did with Anna. Uh, I would go and visit her sometimes and she would say, she would greet me by saying, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Things are going on. You have no idea. They're planning something. And, and, and she was afraid. I mean, she truly, you know, was uh, mortified that, that, that something was going to happen. Well, the truth was it was that there was anything going on but the caregivers had a, a a number of people they were taking care of and so they would uh go down the hallway and she could hear them going down the hallway at their little you know clippity pace and she would always say oh there they go flippity flopping again so they were <laughs> they they were they were doing their job they were being diligent but she thought they were avoiding her because they'd quit go past and so sometimes she'd get in her wheelchair and just sit in the doorway and and and, and try to stop them well even that you know the oh hi anna how are you today but they didn't have time to stop and and do anything with her so what i really did was uh when i would go to visit her uh, she loved um, music from the 40s and uh, on our cable TV down here, there's a station that plays all of that, you know, big band music and all of that. And so we'd always have that on. And uh, actually, I always left it on 24 hours a day for her, but the caregivers would come in and turn it off uh, thinking, you know, that was disturbing her, but I don't think it was. I think it was helping her. So we would do that. Um, and a lot of times just to be there with her, to not move at a pace that was faster than than she could adjust, that she could see. Uh, if you walked up to her too quickly, you startled her, you know. So um, just to be there was something that that gave her a sense of um, safety, I think. Yeah. Safety and security. Uh, yeah. yeah. Safety. We also, when we went to the um, assisted living, we took a, ra a rolling rack of um, uh, these 
binder folders. Um, it's like if you have a stack of magazines and there's a little holder you can put your magazines in. Well, we had this rolling mm -hmm. rack and was full of all journals that she had been writing for years and years. And so she could wheel over there when she was by herself and pull out a journal and, and read something that she had written 20 years ago. Oh, how wonderful. It was great. And then sometimes I would go to visit her and she would have picked out like one or two of them. And she would say, oh, listen to this. This is really good. <laughs> you know, like, like she had discovered it. You know, it was fun. And uh, and she was an avid magazine reader. So she must uh, must have received, I don't know, 15 uh, subscriptions and they'd come all the time. And, and she read them. She literally would read them. She couldn't watch a movie. Uh, she couldn't read a book, but she could read the articles in, in the magazines, and then she would save those to share, which was always a good time. Do you by any chance have those journals? I do. I have, um, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. The, the later ones are really, really hard to read because their handwriting is so uh, weak and, you know, uh, jiggly. Uh, but yes, I have them and and um, and I will probably keep them uh, heartbreaking because uh, I think they're things that, you know, the nieces would like to have and I've offered them and they declined, which is just, you know, why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you want right. these things? They may change yeah. their mind yeah. going forward. I hope I hope so. Yeah, that, I, that's I true. truly hope so. The other. Mm -hmm. And, you know. Journaling is such a lost it is. art. It is, and uh, and and she kept every scrap of paper she ever wrote on. So you know, there there were just tons and tons of them. When you talk, Mike, about the little scrap of paper your father had, this reminds me of early in my caregiving experience with Anna, when I was trying to talk to her about something, and she either didn't agree with me or she didn't understand it. She would take out her purse and pull out a wallet and she'd just start rifling through everything in her wallet, you know, and she kept every business card from every place she went and she'd go through these things and through them and through them. And it just got, I would get so frustrated because she wasn't paying attention to me. And it wasn't until later that I realized she was grounding herself. She, she wasn't uh, avoiding me or the topic. She needed to get back to understand who she was, where she was. She was touching the things she could touch. And so after that, when we had to have a big discussion, I'd always go get her wallet and give it to her and let her hold it. <laughs> and then I'd say, okay, we're going to talk about going to the doctor next week or, or whatever we needed to do. We're going to talk about you taking your medicine now. You know? But I gave her her little crutch so she could, could move on with you good, have wonderful instincts. Good for you. I mean, talk. Yeah, instinct is is impeccable. Anyway, there. It was um, it was the friendship. I think I, I don't I don't take any credit for any of it. I think it was the you know the give and take. We uh, we like to say you know we were sisters of the heart. You know so. Uh, mm -hmm. And people would always say, well, you know, are you her daughter? And, and she got a kick out of that. And uh, then we would say, no, we are sisters of the heart. <laughs> and that's very special. Very, very special. Yeah. And one of the things that people don't understand, I, and I, I experienced it to some degree, caring for my father-in-law, the assumption always was that I was his daughter. 
And when I explained that actually I was his daughter-in-law, there was some confusion as to why that would happen. But when you make a connection with somebody, if somebody becomes a part of your family of the heart, as you say, um, that's as strong a connection as, and as real as a connection as any out there. And people, you know, hearing that I was a daughter-in-law would say, my God, you must be a saint. <laughs> and, and my response to that was, I'm no saint. And he would have been the first one to agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there are hard times. Oh. There are very hard times uh, when you do that. I mean, you'd like to comfort them. You'd like for them to be happy. I think, I think not trying to make her happy was the hardest thing for me to give up. You know, I wanted her to to laugh and and smile and, you know, embrace life. And she had really kind of moved on from that. And when I realized that, you know, what she really needed was just someone to be there and to be patient and um, and touch her, you know, that you you, you lose that sense of uh, uh Unfortunately, in our society, as people age, they become unattractive uh, to the general public. And so no one wants to, you know, give you a hug or whatever, you know, maybe, you know, your grandmother and things like that. But Anna was from the generation where you held hands with your girlfriends, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, things like that. And I felt very comfortable you know, sitting there and holding her hand or, or crawling next to her, into bed next to her when, and letting her take a nap. It was, it was comfortable for me and it was comforting, comforting for her, you know, so it was, it was nice. Mm-hmm. And it made her feel safe. And that was the most important I, I thing so. right there. Yeah. And I, being protected and, and being safe. That's what the people in the care homes are now close to visitors are missing so much is mm-hmm. human touch. Um, shortly before he died, my dad came and, and spent some time with us. And I remember when the first time when he walked in the door and when I hugged him, he just kind of relaxed into it and just seemed so grateful that he had felt that because for years he'd been living with a stepson and those two men did, weren't hugging. They weren't holding hands. And when he walked in the door with his daughter, who can't help but hug people anyway, uh, it was something right. that he had missed. Right. Well, the, this, the story of you and Anna is certainly so very, very heartwarming. I, uh, I, just, I just love it. And, <laughs> um, you know, being an extended family member is, and taking care of somebody is special. But... Being the um, foster parent of the orphan elder or the the foster um, companion of of an orphan elder is every bit, if not more, special. And so I commend you um, from the bottom of my heart. I mean, it's I'm just amazed uh, um, with with your journey on the caregiving. And like you said, caregiving is hard. There's nothing easy about it. But looking back on it, as Bobby says, she would do it all again. Oh, absolutely. Would you? It, it, it was a great honor to be able to do it. It was a great honor to do things for someone who that you, you know, really respected uh, and, and, and felt a right. kinship with. I call it a gift mm-hmm. I didn't know I wanted. 
Terry, would, do you have any advice for somebody who might be considering being a caregiver of an elder orphan? Any insights that you gained along the way that you feel they should hear? Yes. Uh, to give of yourself is a, is a big commitment. When I started, I thought that I would, would uh, I, didn't, I didn't think it would be a whole lot more work than uh, giving rides uh you know carrying her along <laughs> being her companion uh and and i discovered very quickly that it was uh very very much more um but it was very much worth it uh not being uh, a family member or not having spent a lifetime with her uh i was very it was very easy for me to keep the image of what she was like before she had the dementia uh, and the illnesses and the frailties. And and I could always, uh, I could see that in her. And I think sometimes families uh, get consumed with that, or there's a little bit of shame or guilt that goes with the conduct of uh, the dementia patient, patient. I never felt that. I never felt I owned any of the um, uh, odd things that Anna did. Uh, you know, there was no teaching her or modifying her behavior. Uh, I, I felt that just to put her where she would be comfortable always calmed her down or let her move beyond. And as a friend, you can kind of step back from some of those um, very heavy guilt feelings. And so I wouldn't be afraid to do it for someone, uh, but I would say, it, it's not as easy as it sounds. It's a commitment. Uh, it's a commitment. And, and, and you need to know that you're willing to do it. Right. You don't have the emotional right. baggage of growing up with, an, with a person or growing up around a person. I think that's, that's really important. And it makes it maybe a little less difficult sometimes. But, well, again, Terry, thank you so much for being part of the show. I'm sure our listeners got well, a lot out of this. I appreciate doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. One of my takeaways was when she said that she wrote the three-page letter when Anna right. became hearing impaired, and especially for a writer, because we know that writers read and reread and reread and reread their work, so we're committed to the written word. So that was that was a very special tip. Yes. Um, I got that also. That was, uh, if, if the words aren't there um, for, the, for the hearing, then the written word absolutely is another way of communicating. And behavior is communicating too. And so the, the, as she said, the touching, the, the hugging, the, just that, that is also communication that is felt, not necessarily heard. So yeah, that's that's good stuff. The other note that I took was how trying to make her happy was hard to give up and understanding that happiness wasn't wasn't the aim at that point. It was comfort comfort holding her hand, being there with her. Having her that, feel safe. That's that's that is a hard thing to give up and I'm glad that um Terry shared that with us. Yes. You can find more about Terry on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. 
So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.